as we've walked through uh, these first several chapters of Ecclesiastes, uh, I hope you're having as much fun as I'm having. This is one of those books where I feel like we don't spend a lot of time in, and because we don't spend time in it, we are worse off. And as we walk throughout this, Solomon has so much practical and godly wisdom uh, to give us. Uh, In this morning's Sunday school class, uh, Dr. Kennedy uh, spoke a lot about how the Old Testament informs the New. And this is true uh, if you're reading your New Testament really carefully. And I hope you've noticed that in Christ Bible Church, we've spent a lot of time in our first year in the Old Testament. I was doing a rough calculation in my head. I didn't preach all 52 weeks of the first year. Uh, But of the weeks I preached, we spent at least 28 of them uh, in the Old Testament. 28, because the Old Testament points us forward to Christ. It lays that foundation uh, we need. And honestly, teaching at Christian schools, going to Christian schools, um, growing up in the church, I can say with quite a bit of confidence, uh, most Christians don't know their Old Testament very well at all. And we are are worse off uh, for that. And Ecclesiastes 5 establishes for us how to approach God in worship. So we start with a a basic question. Why do you go to church? What got you here uh, this morning? Or why do you have a Christian faith at all? Why is this a a thing that you feel necessary to do in your life? What are you looking for from coming to church? There are certainly different answers that different people give to that question. And sometimes those answers are more about personal preference or cultural trends than they are actually about why the Bible says you should gather to worship the Lord. We live in a time marked by uh, the therapeutic. Life is all about feeling good. And so we judge something as good or bad uh, based upon how it makes me feel. And if you're honest, on any given moment, uh, that can change. Something could make you feel good today, and tomorrow it might make you uh, feel rather poor. And so our judgments if that is how we judge, are tossed back and forth. And much of the uh, larger evangelical movement, I fear, is shaped by this therapeutic stuff. In fact, there was a study a few years ago that said most Christians believe in what is called moral therapeutic uh, deism. That we come to Christianity for some morals, to feel good, and that there is some God uh, out there whatsoever. And so evangelicalism has this really uh, bad tendency to be obsessed with being relevant and hip. And the problem is, is that Christianity is not very hip. Uh, I'm certainly not very hip. And, but it is relevant. But what we try to do with our relevancy is that we do whatever the world has done. We just do it five years later and a whole lot less cool than the world does it. And so we have church fad after church fad. And as a pastor, I can say it's often painful to watch how the eternal truths of God are hawked like a used car sale. And that is not how we do church. One of the more dominant movements within the American church has been the the seeker-sensitive movement. And of course, all Christians should desire their neighbors to find God. We should desire for the gospel to go forward and to bring in lots of people like we see in the book of Acts. But having read much of this movement, uh, it came about with the idea of applying business principles to the church and building a church brand so you can build brand loyalty and then you can carve out your market share uh, as a church. A lot of the early founders of this movement went around to their 
their neighborhoods they wanted to plant churches in, and they pulled the neighborhood, whether they were believers or not, and they said, you tell me what you want from your church, and then we'll build that church to match it. And the problem with that, of course, is, is if you're polling a bunch of unbelievers and you design your church upon what unbelievers want, well, that's probably not a great idea. The unregenerate mind is not the standard of the church. And we have seen a big name after big name within this movement uh, fall to scandal after scandal because we built personal empires based upon big personalities and celebrity Christians. It became less and less about Christ and more and more about a brand or a person or a certain bravado. Now, of course, there's a lot of wisdom we can glean from the world of business, but we have to make this clear. The church is fundamentally not a business. It is not that. You do not offer Jesus with a 30-day back money guarantee. Do not just say, try him for 30 days and see how he works out for you. As best-selling Christian authors have said. We do not sell church or Christianity as an experience. Because when we do, it becomes about us. And many songs on our Christian radio, and some that are sung within churches, are all about how Christianity makes me feel. I want you to think really carefully about this. If what we sing, the main character of what we sing about is me and my experience, who exactly are we worshiping? Are we worshiping ourselves, or are we worshiping God? This all gets really complicated because you're living the Christian life well, it will have a positive impact in your life. It will, in a lot of situations, make you feel better. The problem isn't those things, it's that we want those things in the place of God. And we make them central instead of God. And this matters because throughout the New Testament, again and again, the church is referred to as the temple of God on earth. That is, is if the world is going to see God, if the world is going to experience God, if the world is going to hear from God, they are to go to the church. This is where God dwells in this age. And so how we do church, how we go to worship, communicates what we believe about God. That's a fundamental uh, principle. And we have to admit that often we abuse the image of God because we have irreverent attempts at relevance, or, as other generations have produced, a cold formalism that tries to cling to a bygone era and its trends. The trends of the 1950s church or the 2020 church are not the standards of righteousness. None of them are. And that should be clear. And so we have trained our people to treat God as a product to be consumed. Someone who is there to make us feel better about ourselves. We approach God like that therapist who's there to make me feel better. Or he's that life coach who's always got that inspirational saying that I can put on my mug or in the back of my car. Or he's your cheerleader or your genie who's there to always give you the thing you want if you ask just rightly. And what is lost is this grandeur and transcendence and holiness of God. Because we define him based upon what we want from him. And this has had disastrous consequences all over the place. If you've ever heard someone say this, when they're doing something that is wrong, that's clearly against what the Bible teaches, they say, well, God wants me happy. Really? Where did you get that idea from? That your happiness, your personal happiness, trumps 
everything else. Certainly didn't get it from the Bible. And again, God does want his people joyous and happy and satisfied in him. But your happiness is not the standard by which we judge things. And this is where the first seven verses of Ecclesiastes 5 are so helpful. How should we, in a world marked by vanity of vanities, how do we go to God? Remember, chapter 4 was all about, hey, man is sinful. Man fails in the second great command of loving his neighbor as himself. Now we're going to look at the first great command. How do we love God? How do we love God? And the key here is a heart attitude. It's not cold formalism, and it's not uh, the rejection of cold formalism for um, hip hipsterness or something like that. Rather, we have an attitude of reverence. We have an attitude of respect towards God. And that's where we start. How do we approach the Lord with reverence? Well, the undergirding principle here is that we must respect God for who he is, and part of that is recognizing that you and me are not him. We are not God. Look at these excerpts from verse 1 and 2. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And then in verse 2, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Why should you respect God? Why should you give him reference? Because he is in heaven and you are not. Now that is not primarily a geographical note that God is up there and that you're down here because one day all of us, if the Lord tarries, we, we will be up there with God. We'll be up there by grace through faith with God. Rather, this statement is about the surpassing transcendence and infinite glory of God. That he is greater than anything and everything put together in this creation. That he is in one really important way, transcends and distinct from creation. We are dependent upon him for everything. He is dependent upon us for nothing. And we get some of this in chapter 3, where Solomon spends so much time giving us the stinging contrast of God to man. He says, God appoints all the seasons of life, a time to love, a time to hate, a time to be born, and a time to die. That God reigns over all of that, that he appoints these seasons. And that we are stuck in this cycle of vanity where we try to get gain and try to get beyond it, but we cannot. And so he gives us these contrasts. We die. God is eternal and does not die. We toil, and all we get is wind. And God toils, and his work produces lasting and eternal beauty. We chase the wind and get nothing, and God chases that which has been driven away by sin. We cannot control life, and God does. That is who God is. He's the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God who spoke the universe into existence by his own power, who upholds every molecule for all eternity by the power of his word, the one who is infinitely loving, holy, righteous, and sovereign. And that God you do not approach casually. You do not approach him flippantly. You do not say, as I saw a guy at my alma mater wear a t-shirt, Jesus is my homeboy. No, he's not. You approach God like Isaiah does in chapter 6, where he's pulled into the glory of the Lord and he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among an unclean people.
people. That and that alone is the right heart attitude. Even though man is made in God's image, there's a chasm of difference between God and humanity. We are like God in that we are personal. We relate to one another. We bear his image, but we are finite. We are limited. He he is infinite. We are stained by sin, but he is three times holy. And proper worship starts with recognizing that that is who God is, and that is who we are in comparison to him. Approaching God with reverence is more about an internal reality or a heart condition than an external reality. Now, of course, Jesus says, what's going on in your heart is reflected by your external behavior. But we must be careful here because the cultural expressions of respect are just that. They're cultural. They shift. They even shift from one generation sometimes to the next. And so while wearing a suit and or tie may reflect proper reverence for God, it is no universal standard. The early church didn't have suit and ties. Most of them were slaves, and they came to worship however they could. Your dress does and can matter because it can reflect what is going on in your heart. You may communicate a wooden legalism in how you dress or a disrespectful laziness in how you dress in worship. But really, it's not the dress that's the problem. It's what it reflects on the inside. The key is to have a heart of reverence to the Lord that will shape how you act according to your ability and your cultural standards. But the point is inward, not external. Next, how do we respect the Lord in worship? We come to listen. We come to listen to him. Verses, or the second half of verse 1 through verse 3. It says, To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they are doing is evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. The warning here is that you and I should come to church not to speak, but to listen. It's a particular warning for a pastor who has to come and who will speak more than most of you today, this morning. But what he's getting at here, again, is the heart attitude. Why do we speak generally? I speak because I feel like I have something important to say, that you need to hear what it is that I'm saying. And if you come to the Lord with this heart attitude that he needs to hear from you instead of you need to hear from him, then you've got something backwards. You see, one of the things God hates most, both Old Testament and New, is hypocrisy. It is those who put on a front that they're following God, but who really aren't. The great command is for us to love God with all of our heart, our mind, our body, and our strength. The picture here is that your love for God should flavor and motivate everything that you do. This is not a romantic type of love. Jesus is not your boyfriend. But it's a love that a countryman has for his king. That he honors him, he respects him, and he has an allegiance to him that motivates everything that he does. And this love is unified, wholly committed at the center of the person. And that is difficult because 
we're all sinners. None of us fulfill the great commandment. None of us do that on our own. And yet, the Bible also says there's a way in which we can say that such a love generally marks your life. That you can be righteous generally in how you live, though you are not sinless. And that's what this passage is getting at. We are warned that when we approach God, we should not be going through uh, the motions of religion just for the sake of it. God hates, it says, he hates the sacrifice of fools. What is the sacrifice of the fool? Well, throughout the Old Testament, one of the primary ways that Israel approached God was through sacrifices. And they had sacrifices for different sins. They had sacrifices for different occasions. They had this all laid out within the book of Leviticus. And throughout the history of Israel, there was rarely a time where these sacrifices were not offered, at least in some form. They almost always were being offered at the tabernacle or at the temple while it was still um, standing. But for much of Israel's history, these sacrifices were only done so out of tradition, religious obligation, and formality. God would say to them, I hate your sacrifices. You think I want the blood of bulls and goats? That's not what I want. I want right worship. God hates fake worship. And so for those of us who gather weekly, we must be on guard against such hypocritical worship. We do not want to be those who offer the sacrifices of fools to God. Where we only do the external things. Where we gather together every week to celebrate this meal, which can get a bit formal sometimes and can feel dry and overly um, religious. But only if your heart is there. Only if your heart is far from the Lord. The heart of the warning here that um, Solomon gives us is that we should not approach the Lord in trying to do too much, whether it's talking too much or working too much. It's like we come to, come to church to be seen or we come to church to be known and not to make much of God. And the focus becomes on me. True worship, whether in song or deed, is always God-centered. True worship is always God-centered. It's about Him, His glory, His power, and His grace. And so he says, come to God, come to worship, ready to listen. To listen. That's what the heart of this book is. As Solomon searches for meaning throughout this life, it's all about him. It's all about him at first, and he can't get it. And he has to recognize that God is God and that he isn't. That if there is to be any gain, it must come from God and not man. That's especially important in worship. We come to put the, the flesh to death and to hear new life through the gospel. One of the changes the Reformers made to worship was aesthetic. In uh, medieval worship in the Roman Catholic Church, the entire service revolved around the Eucharist. Everything was about the Eucharist, that is the Lord's Supper, and the magical grace that it would impart as you took it. But the Reformers, when they built their churches, they did something different. They put pulpits in there. And they put the pulpits high and lifted up and at the center of the sanctuary, well, the center of the front. And why did they do this? For theological reasons. 
Because what was central to worship, or what is central to worship, is the word of God. It has authority. Not the pastor, not the clergy, not the Roman Catholic Church. Central to righteous worship is listening to God. It is listening to Him and His words. That is why when pastors preach, if they are doing their jobs well, you should be hearing from the word of the Lord. You should be hearing from God and not man. And this is why the trend of removing pulpits from churches because they're intimidating and they turn people off, not a good thing. The pulpits were put there for a reason. This is why the trend of moving away from biblical sermons is damaging. You don't come to worship to hear a TED Talk. You don't come to worship to, to laugh at a comedian standing, not behind a pulpit, standing behind nothing. You come to hear from the Lord. You come to be corrected, to be instructed, to be encouraged, to be instructed to rebuke or to repent and turn in faith. The loss of this is why so many who profess Christ are spiritually weak. Because they're not fed. One of the favorite things, um, one of my favorite stories of the gospel is Jesus, um, before he feeds, it's either the 4,000 or the 5,000, he looks out at the multitude and he's, it says that he has compassion on the crowd because they are like sheep without a shepherd. And what does his compassion drive him to do? Not the miracle first. His, the compassion drives him to teach. To teach them that they might hear from the Lord. That is why we must come with a proper heart of worship, which is eager to hear, whether it is the word preached or the songs that we sing, to be taught about the Lord God. And this is why preachers like me must first preach their sermon to themselves. As I'm writing my sermon, I have to apply it to me first. Otherwise, I don't come with the right heart of worship. The theme of Ecclesiastes is gift and not gain. To receive from God instead of toiling and working yourself. And the greatest gift you receive from God as a Christian is His Word. It is Scripture. All throughout the generations of the church and the Jewish people before that, the Word of God was passed down from generation to the generation often stained in blood and translated at the cost of the lives of God's people so that you might have his word and that you might listen to it. To hold it up as a mirror and then submit to it. That's really what listen here means, not just sitting here and hearing things, but as you hear God's word, you say, that is true and I will by grace through faith Try to live it out. For it is really, really dangerous to sit in these chairs every week. Like, like you do not realize how dangerous this is. Because you get God's word thrown at you from me and Ardell and anyone else who fills this pulpit over and over again. And it would be really easy to feel like, hey, you know what? I know all this already. It would be really easy to say, you know what? I'm going to listen because Bob needs to hear this. Right? He needs to hear this, not me. I tried to pick a name that's not here, but I did. Sorry, Bob. 
My bad. Um, now I'm totally lost. Yeah, don't listen for others. You come to listen for yourself first. It is you who needs to hear the word of God. Don't be throwing elbows. Did you hear that? No, it's you. You need to hear the word of the Lord. All of us do. Because if we grow hard-hearted to the word of God preached, that is the path to spiritual ruin. Is that we become dull of hearing and slow to repent and think, you know what, I know better. So we're instructed here to come ready to listen. The third way to approach the Lord with reverence is to come and act with truthfulness. Verses 4 through 6. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? In the Old Testament, vows were never required of the people. They were voluntary. You could go your entire life and faithfully worship the Lord and not enter into a vow. But if you did, they were serious and they had to be fulfilled. You are not to do, as Solomon says here, when the person comes and says, hey, you vowed to give this to the temple. Sorry, that was a mistake. I didn't really mean it. Generally, vows were taken when a person was in suffering and they were asking for deliverance from God. And there's a real temptation that once that suffering ceases to say, oh, you, you know, I didn't really mean it. And it wasn't God who got me out of that. It just, it just came to its natural end. We see that uh, still today. People will pray to God. Even sometimes people who don't know him, they say, hey, God, if you get me out of this, or if you get my kid out of this, if you, get, if you solve this problem for me, I will give you fill in the blank. And if you say such things to God, you must know that he knows all, he hears all, and he does not like it when you backtrack. He is the l- ruler of the universe, and you owe him everything, especially what you pledge to him. Our God is truthful. Throughout Old Testament and New, there is this significant thrust on truth throughout the Bible. There's the forbidding of lying in the Ten Commandments. There's the discussion in the Psalms about the truthfulness of God's word. Or you have in John, or the Gospel of John, that Jesus is the very incarnation of truth. You also have in the Gospel of John that Jesus says that if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. That truth originates from God. It flows from him. And that lies come from Satan. He is the father of lies. In an age that hates truth, it hates it because it hates God first. And so your worship and mine must be marked by truthfulness. Most of us will never make a religious vow in our life. Not like what we see in the Old Testament. But there is one very obvious comparison that impacts most of us, and that is our marriage vows. That word vow is, is chosen very, very specifically. When you get married, you vow to do many things, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. 
and we pledge and vow ourselves to our spouse, repeating these words after our pastor, in front of witnesses, we even sign legal documents, and even more important than all of that is we enter into those vows before God. We make a vow to love and to not be separated from our spouse before God until one of us dies. And that, brothers and sisters, is no minor thing. And the divorce rate shows us that many of us do not take those vows seriously enough. And there are warnings here in Ecclesiastes 5 should hit us right there. When you make a vow before God, he expects you to keep it. That doesn't mean there's not forgiveness. It doesn't mean that every person who gets divorced is, the, is in sin. Generally, at least one party is. Sometimes there really is a victim. But your vow should hold weight. And God expects you to keep it. And so husbands and wives, I encourage you this week to think on your vows. Think of what you have pledged to your husband or to your wife. For better or worse, to love and to cherish. Do you do it? Do you do that? That doesn't mean you won't fall short. You will. But there is forgiveness and empowering and sustaining grace. Here's an example. There was a woman who was divorcing her husband, not for abuse, not for infidelity, basically because they couldn't get along anymore. But before, shortly before she filed for divorce, they, he had said he was going to buy them a new house. And as she was filing for divorce, she screamed that he had broken his vow to buy her a new house. And the irony of that, that she was breaking the more fundamental vow, was completely lost on her. That is the deceitfulness of sin. It is easy for me to say my wife or my husband isn't fulfilling their parts of the vow. But you must come to listen about yourself first. Am I living up to what I have said that I will do? It is never too late to turn and to repent and to ask God for forgiveness and grace because he is strong enough. Why all this seriousness? Why all the reverence? Well, verse 7 gives us the last reason why you should approach the Lord with reverence. It says, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. And the implication here is that God will judge. That God will judge. The very last verse of this book is just that. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You should fear God in part because he has said what is good and what is evil. And he has also said that he will judge all of us according to that standard. This is the same God who told Moses to take off his sandals in the desert because he was standing on holy ground. This is the same God who struck down a man for presumptuously touching the Ark of the Covenant. This is the same God who struck down two people in the New Testament church because they lied about what they were giving. And so we must fear him, for he is three times holy, and he has promised to judge 
every secret thought and every secret deed. And the bad news is, none of us pass that judgment. Not even close. So how can we approach the Lord with joy and confidence? Well, Hebrews 4, 16 and the surrounding passage gives us some hope. It says, Because Christ is our great high priest, because he is God and he came from heaven, and because he is also man and he can sympathize with us in our weakness, because he became one of us, that we can approach the throne of God with confidence. That you can approach God with confidence because Christ died once and for all for all the sins of his people. If you are in Christ by grace through faith, then you can be confident, even though you sin, even though you fall short, because you are in Christ. Because his blood is greater than your sin. And so you and I can approach God in worship, in prayer, in life, and in death with confidence and joy because you have a righteousness that is not your own. That does not come from you fulfilling the law, but from him. And this was God's plan all along. That he would save his creation by becoming one of us dying in our place and rising again on the third day so that you might see that God's grace, his mercy, and his steadfast love is greater than our sin. And so we approach the Lord with joy, confidence, and reverence, for he has saved us in Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us grace through Christ that you have opened the way that we might approach you through him. Lord, I know that there are many, many sins in this room where there are many sinners. But may you encourage us that your grace is more and that the work of Christ is greater than our worst sins. So Lord, we ask that you would accept our humble acts of worship as we come to you through the blood of the Lamb. It's in his name we pray. Amen.